This is Oren Herskowitz, Executive Director of Columbia Technology Ventures at Columbia University in the City of New York. Today we'll be talking to Dr. Alyssa Park, the Lenfest Earth Institute Professor of Climate Change at Columbia. She'll be talking about her work trying to take waste streams and turn them into useful products by recycling and capturing the carbon. We'll talk about her process of starting her company Green Ore and how she got to work with all the steel and iron producers and get this company launched in record time. We'll talk about whether she wants to create more companies based on her experience in trying to get this one up and running and the critical role that grad students and postdocs play in the lab. Dr. Park, thank you for joining us today. I really appreciate it. So just to get us started, can you tell us a little bit about your lab's area of focus? Like, how would you describe your research, pro- your research program to a layperson? Well, great to talk to you, Oren, today. Uh, my research group is uh, focusing on how to develop novel materials to capture carbon dioxide from atmosphere or waste streams and convert them to some useful stuff like either new concrete or chemicals and fuels and so on. And we're basically creating a new materials and reaction pathways to do this. So So make that real for us. How does this actually work in practice? Sure. If you look around your room, uh, try to find one material or one item does not have any carbon in it be very difficult, including yourself. We have a lot of carbon everywhere. (laughs) So being able to use the carbon is very critical for our modern society. Without carbon, we're not going to have plastics, we're not going to have a desk, we're not going to have any of these. So in order to make that without using any more fossil like coal and natural gas, what we do is uh, we try to uh, harvest carbon dioxide from air or even biomass and convert them to stuff. The whole process is called reactions and separations. Those are the kind of terms we use, how we transform one material to another material. Carbon dioxide is really useful, but they're not really in high in energy. It doesn't want to convert to something else useful. What we have to do is get renewable energy, like uh, electricity from solar or wind, and putting them into work by tearing carbon dioxide apart into useful form and rebuild them into materials, which we call it catalysis. So this uh, reactor system, actually like a cooking uh Uh, vessel, and we're putting ingredient, which is carbon dioxide, in there, and by putting energy in, reorganize them into the useful stuff. Like uh, what comes out is chemical eventually becomes the things you actually use or fuels you burn. (laughs) If I'm picturing one of these reactors, what scale are we working at? So I'm not sure whether you live near any refineries or power plants. These are like a small city. If you really want to do uh, this in the industrial scale, these are huge. The reason is we're not making small amount of plastics. The amount of plastics we are making is huge. Or gasoline, huge amount. Because that scale, most of these uh, uh, reactor systems or plants, chemical plants, are really large. That was a traditional way. There's something called economics of scale. So bigger, the better. (laughs) But these days, there's a little difference, like different approaches to these are happening because last 10 years or so, or even more, we start doing a lot more automation. 
you can push the button. You don't even need to be there. Microwave cooks your or heat up your food automatically by self-controlling the temperature and don't go crazy over it. So a similar thing happened in chemical industry so that we can automate a lot of things, which means that we can develop these reactor systems and chemical plants in the modular size. And then instead of, we call it, instead of doing scale up to the really huge scale, we can do scale out, which means copy paste, copy paste, many of them. So instead of having huge reactors, now you can have um, maybe refrigerator size or slightly bigger, and then many of them connect to each other. So there are many different versions of these, but at the end of the day, either scale up or scale out, depending on the what market you're talking about, these are huge in scale. But give me a couple mm -hmm. of examples of an input, a place where you'd be taking in a waste stream uh, or carbon mm -hmm. dioxide and some kinds of materials that might be coming out. Sure, a good example is that one of the things we are working right now at um, Columbia in my group and many other groups right now is how to view waste to energy plant. So I think some of you might be familiar with the waste to energy power plant. They basically burn garbage and then make electricity. And these uh, waste to energy plants are really low in efficiency, maybe 20% so that although it's a major product, they call it, it is the electricity and we actually benefit of using that. We do have waste to energy plants here in New York City, but the issue is it's not efficient. But at the same time, the waste coming in has a lot of stuff in it, like uh, metals and copper and even gold and all these things. So now instead of looking at either CO2 being generated from this burning garbage uh, waste energy plant and wasting all these metals and other components, now should we even call waste energy plant waste energy plant? Can we just make it as a new chemical factory? Now its feedstock is waste. So we are developing waste that we can complete the cycle of not only carbon dioxide, but all the elements. So in, we're integrating CO2 into the reactor system with the, all this waste coming in. We actually do the separations stepwise so that we make valuable products, including copper, which you can make on other electronics again, so that it has new life, as well as carbon dioxide reacting with calcium inside the, this uh, waste stream make calcium carbonate, which is like artificial limestone, eventually makes another new building. So these are the kind of closing the loop type of idea we are working on at Columbia. That's amazing. I, I mean, when you think about that, it seems like it could have so many advantages because it instead of like what would have happened to that garbage and all those metals if you weren't doing this? Yeah, so if we do landfill, there's a lot of environmental impact, right? Because we have land use change and you can have a lot of uh, methane emissions. There are a lot of issues. First of all, if you want to do better for the environment, we need to stop taking stuff out of the ground and stop landfilling. Simple, right? Because we already have a lot of materials everywhere on Earth. So if we stop mining of these resources, and then continue to use them, recycle them, and only input into garbage going back to product, and product becomes a garbage, and going back and forth. We do it only with the renewable energy. That's true sustainability. And is that what got you interested in this? I, I, you know, one of the things that I love talking to Columbia scientists about is people might have come to their 
area from a whole bunch of different directions. Like, did you come to this from wanting to save the world from environmental disaster? Or did you come to this because you love tinkering with chemicals? Uh, or, or was there something else? Like, how did you how did you get interested in this field and how did this become your life's work? <laughs> That's an interesting question because uh, when I was an undergrad, I did a lot of research in different labs and really interested in reactions and particles and all that. I never really thought about environmental issues. But that's when I went to PhD, I was just talking to my PhD advisor in my day one. And he was just talking to me about how he was feeling passionate about this uh, developing new energy systems, which has some purpose of cleaning up the environment. And initially I thought, hey, I don't know, I'm really interested in making better refinery or something. But the more I listened to him, he said that we really enjoy the high energy density of fossil resources like a coal and natural gas and petroleum for last century. But is it the really sustainable way? And I think, I think that even at the time, we did not really use the word sustainability. But it started to really dawn on me that amount of material we recover or harvest from mine, from nature, where are they going? The scale of it is just so much. So we started thinking about this quite a bit. And because of that, I started thinking, if I put any of the technology development and consider that with the environment, uh, put the environment within the system boundary, how would it change the way I develop technology start to fascinate me? I think that's where I started. So it's interesting. I, I, is that something that you found uh, has continued in your time at Columbia? Like, are you, when you, you've been, you've been at Columbia for, how many years have you been here? Uh, 14 years. 14 years. So you've been at Columbia for- Time flies. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. Uh, it's actually one of the amazing things about Columbia, I find, is that, Many people come here thinking it'll be a stop along the way. And at least from my experience, it's been such an incredibly rewarding and diverse place with so many different things going on that it's hard to imagine ever leaving. I've been, I came for, I thought this was going to be a one year job and I've been here 15 now. <laughs> <laughs> yes. um, but how has your work changed over the course of your time at Columbia? I think Colombia is quite unique place. And then this, the reason I joined Colombia 2007 was very unique. So when I was applying for a faculty position then in 2006, I thought that I would go to very traditional engineering school in chemical engineering, doing what I've been kind of envisioned to do. But then when I came to visit Colombia and I realized that Colombia is quite different. First of all, there is a lot more collegiality between not only within engineering school, but they work closely with business school and policy school and so on. And there's an institute called the Earth Institute. Now we have climate school even, right? And I think that we are so used to working with each other far beyond our own expertise area. So when I came here, I was getting questions from not only my fellow engineering faculty members and students, I was getting really interesting questions from policymakers and um, even natural scientists. And I think they're really enriched. It does not mean I do policy research, but I get inspired by their curiosity. And I think that makes my research whole on another level. Let's talk briefly about the other part of your day job. Or maybe it's your night job. You've got a lot of jobs. Um, so, <laughs> so um, 
Let's talk about your experiences trying to take some of your research at the university and turn it into a startup. Because I know um, you, you've been at this for a while now and, and your startup's doing quite well. So, but let's maybe start off with how did you know when you had an idea that was ready to com- to bring it out to the market and have it have an impact on society? Like, how did you know that Green Ore was ready to go? So that one was quite tough because I'd never done it before, right? And so I was quite scared to do it because uh, I'm not used to failing. <laughs> so since uh, if you don't start, you don't fail. <laughs> that was my idea at the beginning. But uh, I plan. think I have a brilliant students. Uh, first of all, Colombia is very unique because you CTV or in this leading this amazing team and uh, you do internal evaluation. It's nice for us to think that at least uh, I don't have a crazy idea, which never going to be going to be having any market. So that's kind of nice to know internally that yeah, you think that there's a market for it. So we do apply all these invention disclosures. But at the end of the day, a lot of technology I develop are capital intense. That was one of the reasons I was kind of scared of starting something because without big capital, like money, like how can we build the reactor system large enough to tell me this is going to be successful in industrial scale, right? It's not like uh, we're talking about small reactor and it can be scaled up to the industrial scale. We need to practice this with a lot of investment into this. But after working for a while, uh, some of my PhD students who developed these technologies with me, he got really interested. Uh, Dr. Sean Zhu, he was really energized by, I really want to make this happen. But even then, I told him no. (laughs) (laughs) So what happened was, uh, he was selected as a translational fellow, as a postdoc at Columbia. He learned, actually. I think CTV was also involved in this. He actually learned how to design a uh, develop a business plan and uh, how to make partnership and how to start a company. And through him, I start to build a lot of confidence. I had no issue with the, I believed in my technology. That's not an issue. But at least I knew that there's a lot more to start a company than just uh, having an idea or technology. So green ore, te- green ore technology is basically converting waste streams from iron and steel manufacturing plants into uh, new concrete or construction materials by reacting them with carbon dioxide. So there's a multiple benefits of uh, this technology because we reduce the waste stream, which is going to be landfilled from the iron and steel industry. At the same time, we are fixing carbon dioxide and reducing its emission by making new construction materials, which is much greener. So knowing this technology, we thought that uh, first market entry will be iron and steel industry, and there are so many of them in China. So one of the things I did with my CEO, my former PhD student, uh, we decided to go really check out the industries. What are their really critical needs and what, how we can integrate our technology to them? So in 2014, we made an appointment with the 14 different steel companies in China, and we visited them all. And I had uh, visited uh, one company in South Korea as well, because China is the world's largest steel producer today. And it was really interesting because they did not have any idea our technology existed, but they were so fascinated by the potential reduction of their waste stream while 
really doing something on climate change mitigation by capturing CO2 and making new useful stuff. And they were super excited because it's a new business model for additional business they can have. So after looking at all these 10 different companies, we selected one company to form joint venture. And joint venture was not as easy as we thought, but working with the CTV, we were able to find the uh, unique way we put our technology to the table and they bring their assets to the table and it became the start of the quite interesting and successful startup, Greenor. You know, one of the things that I think is amazing about Greenor and about you and your, and your graduate student, um, now, now the CEO of the company, is how quickly... I may not have felt it to you at the time, but in our world at the university where we see 400 inventions a year and 100 license agreements and 15 to 20 startups, these startups typically take many years, like three, five, 10 years to find the connection to the market, to get things through clinical trials or to identify a market niche or to prove out the technology. And Greenor got there remarkably quickly. And it sounds like part of that was, I know the end, by the way, you mentioned the um, Translational Research Fellows Program. That's an amazing program run by the engineering school at Columbia that uh, has graduate students and postdocs for part of their time, instead of focusing on just the basic research, they also spend time learning about how to bring these products to market. So how, yeah. what do you think enabled Greenor to, to get to actual clients this quickly? I think green ore uh, technology is a little unique, similar to, or I guess the interesting way uh, pros and cons kind of worked with each other in this case, in terms of market. Remember I was telling you that these uh, energy systems or industries and chemical plants are huge in scale. So there are only few companies who are leading this market, same as iron and steel. So if you look around in the entire uh, world, there are only how many major iron and steel companies. And we knew them. So market study or survey was very easy in a sense that there are only uh, maybe 10 companies or maximum 20 we had to look into. So selecting the right company to partnership with was relatively easier at the same time because these there's a reason there are only a handful of companies leading this area because every system is really large and huge in scale. So that make them understand this is the important investment. It takes it took us a long time eventually, but once they get there, they were serious and we were able to translate our technology much faster. So I think it's a little different than uh, other market areas. There are a lot more manufacturing companies and much smaller in scale. The market study was quite different for energy side. And I think that's something we need to remember because uh, I remember CTV had this uh, bridge program and before bridge power bridge, program, right? We, yeah. yeah, power bridge program. We weren't really used to doing translational research or scaling up or doing commercialization of energy industry because it, this is very different than like a pharma, for example, right? So I think we're learning a lot faster than others because of all these experience we had. And we found some unique ways to um, commercialize our technologies. Because if we use the same approach as the pharma or other types of uh, technology development, I don't think we would have made it. Right. 
you guys took advantage of so many different resources at Columbia to help. <laughs> yes, to, yes. I forgot. You, so you went through the Power Bridge program, which our office runs, and that's a, that was a grant mm-hmm. through NYSERDA, the New York State Energy Research Development Authority, who's a phenomenal partner in mm-hmm. in helping to take these energy technologies and bring them to market for the benefit of the you know of the world. So you launched Greenor, and mm-hmm. it sounds like that is off to a great start, and and yet. It was a lot of work. Do, do you feel like now that you've done the scientist entrepreneur thing, did you get bitten by the bug? Do you want to keep doing this and launch more and more startups? Or did you do that and say, wow, that was that was enough. I never want to do that again. <laughs> Are you reading my mind? <laughs> no. I don't know the answer. I'm just asking the question. So I don't think I want to start a new company over and over again. The reason is a lot of challenges weren't associated with technology itself. It was more about finding right partners. Do we want to work with a VC or angel investors? I had to learn a lot about how to work with people with the different backgrounds, with different career goals or business goals and all that so on. And I don't think I want to do that quite too many times, but I think green ore can be great launch point for me to do other commercialization. Whether I'm going to bring uh, my new technology into green ore and commercialize through green ore or not, I'm not particularly sure. But most of my research are really tied to carbon dioxide and resource recovery and upcycling of waste into new products. I think uh, it's not going to be exact copy-paste, but I think Green Ore made me believe that I can actually do it. And we at Columbia, we, I, we have so much support. As you can see, I'm good at utilizing them. We can do it again. Uh, but I think it will be always depending on who's the, my next brilliant PhD student who is brave enough to do this with me because I can't do it alone. <laughs> well, and actually, let me pick up on that because... You know, when I before I joined Columbia and took the took this job at CTV, um, I think I I really had the idea that it was the faculty, you know, the the principal investigator, the faculty member that was the key driving force behind everything. Um, and what's <laughs> been, what I find so interesting now that I've been here is the incredible role that graduate students play in this process, graduate students and postdocs. So maybe tell us a little bit about that, like. You sound like your whole ability to to want to do this again, to some degree, comes down to the graduate students and postdocs in your lab. Like, why? What role do they play? So if you really only care about doing research, you should be in the national lab. <laughs> you shouldn't be here because a university, being a university professor is very different than just doing research. To me, my products are my students and postdocs. That's the impact I make in the world. Of course, I develop technologies as well, but I think ultimately the uniqueness about being a university professor is that you educate people and you uh, let them achieve their goals. And I think uh, most when I feel most gratitude and or um, the excitement is not only my career success, but more so for when my students achieve their dreams and goals and they realize they can do a lot more and they feel passionate about what they do. And I think that's why every decision I make or every research I do, I work with my students and it's a teamwork. So uh, even starting the company, I wasn't particularly interested in starting a company at the time because I was just so busy with my fundamental research. 
But because my student really want, my former PhD student wanted to see how we can translate instead of license, we can always license it out to another company, but he wanted to do it. And that made me feel um, it is important uh, area for me to learn and then see how we can do it. So at the end of the day, universities would not exist if we don't have our students and postdocs. And they are the key. Without them, you can't do any, you cannot do anything in a university. So having a brilliant minds, young minds, and if I can contribute even a little bit and uh, energize them and making them think that they can solve all these world problems, I think that's the future for us for sure. How do you balance your life between the life of an academic research scientist and the life of a scientific entrepreneur and, and presumably all of the other things that we have to do in our lives, like our hobbies and everything else. Like, what do you do outside of the university for fun? <laughs> so first of all, I think uh, being an engineer, it's easier to be entrepreneurial. I think that some students ask me, what is the major differences between engineers versus scientists? If you really go into the lab, like uh, so I'm a chemical engineer and I have colleagues who are in chemistry. So good example is chemistry versus chemical engineering. If you look at daily base, what PhD students are actually working on, they're very similar. The tools we use, similar. Everything seems to be very similar. Main difference is what motivates us to do that research. I think for me, as a PhD, uh, the chemical engineer who is an engineering person, I start from the problem. We are the problem solvers, the servers. So that which means that I like to see the challenge in terms of with the problem. And then kind of walk towards the, if I want to have a solution to this problem, what are the fundamental signs we need to address? And then we eventually go back to the problem. Did we solve that issue? So I think when I talk to, um, I get a lot of industrial funding as well. I like to talk to people in the field. And I think that's what we talk about fourth purpose and all these things at Columbia. The interaction between industry and academia is really highly encouraged at Columbia. So by talking to them, what is the, your major challenge? Not today, not only today, but next five years, 10 years and decades and century. Where are you going? And that motivates me to do my research, fundamental research. And eventually that gets translated because I started from the problem, I think. So that helps me a lot. But as you can see, <laughs> I used to have hobbies. <laughs> I used to have a lot of hobbies like uh, painting and even dancing and a lot of fun things. I used to run painting uh, runs and all that. And I remember one day my mom was saying that, why aren't you doing more of those? Because you used to love doing that. And I said, well, it does not mean I stopped loving them. I love my research so much and I still have the same amount of time per day. And I just get just too fascinated by and this curiosity. I just too curious to see the solution to these questions I have. So for now, um, I, I guess my work and doing research and working with my students is my work slash hobby <laughs> for now. <laughs> and I think as long as you do what you feel passionate about and love and you'll feel happy. And I think that's where I am at this point. Dr. Park, thank you so much for joining us today. This was super interesting. Thank you. <laughs> it was good talking to you.